0: Genesis chapter 6, and the foundations of the faith that are laid out for us here in Genesis chapter 6. So be finding the sixth chapter of Genesis, uh, verses 1 to 3. And just a reminder, uh, we are baptizing next Sunday morning, and if you have not been baptized, I encourage you to do so. Uh, Let me know after the service today. Let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 3. This is from the English Standard Version. When men began to multiply on the face of the land or earth, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive Are beautiful and they took as their wives any they chose. King James has, they took as their wives all they chose. Then, verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not always uh, abide in or plead with, one translation has, plead with man. Forever strive with man, wrestle with man, for his flesh and his days shall be 120 years. If you've been following us in the last few Sundays, I've made the point that the fourth chapter of Genesis is the narrative regarding Cain and how that he brought a sacrifice that was rejected by God, and his brother Abel brought a sacrifice not of the works of the ground like Cain brought, but of the flock, a firstborn in the flock, and that God rejected Cain, and Cain was so angry that he rose up and killed Abel. But it says in chapter 4, verse 26 or verse 25 that Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Seth means to place something instead of. And Eve said they called him Seth because she says, God has replaced for me another child instead of Abel in the place of Abel for Cain killed him. So to Seth was born Enosh, verse 26, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. So if the the fourth chapter is about Cain and his line and his descendants, then the fifth chapter is about Seth and his line and his descendants. And in And in the fifth chapter is where you get Enoch that walked with God, and ultimately Noah, through whom God had the ark built and saved the human race. We might begin here by pointing out that uh, this phrase, Sons of God, in chapter 6, verse 2, I take this as meaning the descendants of Seth those who called on the name of the Lord. Uh, And the line that came through Seth, because in the Old Testament, Exodus 4.22 calls Israel his people. He says, let my son go. God calls his people his son. Or Jeremiah 31.20, Ephraim, which, which is a tribe in Israel, Ephraim is my dear son. Or in the New Testament, Galatians three twenty six, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So when it says here, the sons of God, I take this to be the godly line of Seth that is given to us in the genealogy of chapter 5. And when they saw the daughters of men, that is, they they just they looked out and basically i would put this as the as the line of cain a poetic way of saying they looked and just saw all these beautiful women <laughs> basically and the sons of god the line of seth born in prayer back in chapter 4 verse 26 Characterized with godly ancestors. Enoch, who walked with God and was so close to God that he just elevated right out. Translated up. Didn't didn't even die. That's the kind of heritage they had. But they began to see how beautiful were these women that come from the line of Cain. The ungodly line. So they took them wives of all that they chose. And it says that what you have here in uh, verse 2, and I I think that it makes... I think it's on purpose. Because in Genesis 3, 6, it says that regarding Adam and Eve, when they saw the fruit on the tree that God... in the, the forbidden tree... It says that Eve saw that it was good, Tov, T-O-V, the Hebrew word means beautiful. And she took and did eat. Well, when you look at verse 2, the sons of God saw, and then the daughters of men that they were good that is attractive in appearance and so they took the vocabulary is very similar well, so that what you have here is, is another fall only on a wider scale And it's a fall that has such an impact on society when the sons of God, that is the godly line, married the daughters of men, that is the line of Cain, the ungodly line. That, and the lines between the godly and the ungodly, the believer and the unbeliever, the lines were so blurred as if they were erased So there's no distinction between the church and the world. Then, verse 3 says, Then, in the English Standard Version, the Lord said, they have another 120 years. Because my spirit is not going to always be struggling with them. It's not going to go on like this forever. And pleading with them. There is an end. So, nothing... Here, I want to make two statements here. Nothing accelerates the corruption of society as the church which has lost its convictions and its witness. Because if the church doesn't stand and be clear and draw biblical boundaries, who's going to do it? Who is going to define marriage? I mean... Can a man marry a car? Is that a marriage? It's a rhetorical question, which means you don't have to answer. Can a man marry a dog? Can he marry ten women? (laughs) Can he marry a man? In the beginning... It was not so. And yet, in downtown Washington, D.C., the Washington National Cathedral now performs wedding ceremonies for two men. The church, when it loses its witness... This is not to say that there's no redemption... But if if there's no sin, you don't need a redemption story. You You don't need a gospel. This is not to say that we are better than them. Who says that? What this is to say is there is a gospel which says, though you are in sin and in bondage to sin and born in sin, born that way... There is a God in heaven, and you can have a new birth, and you can be delivered and walk in freedom. And there's not a few people that I know who've experienced it. But who's to define marriage? CNN? Are they going to tell us what marriage is? NBC? Who will call a nation to prayer? Who's going to do that? Barack Obama? Well, we're plowing close to the corn today, ain't we, boys? (laughs) (laughs) And who's going to teach our children the fear of the Lord? Will the teachers' unions and the universities? See, when the church loses its biblical foundations and its spiritual convictions and the lines are blurred, that accelerates the corruption in society exponentially. Now, here's here's the other uh, statement I wanted to make is that nothing accelerates the church's blurring of the lines like intermarrying between the saved and the lost, the believer and the unbeliever. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, when the line of Seth, birthed in a prayer time, saw the line of Cain, birthed with with bloody hands like their ancestor Cain did, when they saw how beautiful they were, they took the initiative, the sons of God. They said, hey, you're Tove. you're, tov, you're uh, attractive, you're hot. Matthew 5, verse 13 puts it like this to the church. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, how shall it be salted again? It's thenceforth good for nothing. But to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. Jesus is talking to his disciples here, the believers. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and then put it under a basket. So, light, we're light, they're darkness. That's a pretty big difference. That's a pretty big distinction. But here in Genesis 6, there is such a falling away of the church. And I don't know how many years you have passed from chapter 4, from the prayer meeting of chapter 4 where it says, and after Seth had Enish, uh, that at that time they began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 then comes, and I don't know how many years have passed. I'm thinking hundreds of years have now passed, up to chapter 6 when these sons of God, this line of Seth, began to follow after the pursuits based on appearances. But it was such a falling away that ultimately the only person left in the line of Seth that still called on God and walked with God was Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9. He was the only one left. That is the effect that intermarriage had on this primeval society. So let's approach it like this. First, what's, what was the basic cause here? What caused, what produced this? Second, we want to talk about the effects. What are the effects of this? Why is it so devastating to a society. And then third, I want to offer some pastoral counsel, some practical steps. So that's the direction I'll go. Number one, what was the actual sin? What, what was the root cause? And this you get in chapter 6 of Genesis and verse 2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and took as their wives any they chose Here's what Albert Barnes, a Presbyterian commentator of a hundred some years ago, here's what he says about it. He says, the evil here described is that of promiscuous intermarriage without regard to spiritual character. The godly took them wives of all. That is, the ungodly, they took the ungodly, as well as godly families, whomever they chose. Not for the godliness of their lives, but for the goodliness of their looks. So what we want to do, parents, grandparents, we want to train our children. Two points here. We want to train our children to look past the cotton candy, to look past the frilly, to look past the outward appearance and the slick haircut and the the suave personality and the smooth talk and go right to the heart of it. Do you love God and are you willing to be second in my life for the remainder of our days than your marriage material? I don't intend to make an idol out of you. If you want to serve God with me, high five. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's a new proposal method high five but to help our young people look past that now here's the second thing Christians who are unmarried look sharp don't be the ugliest dressed person in the room can I get a witness on that I mean, okay, so if I have to... uh, I mean, what I'm saying here is, if you have to go ugly to be Christian, do it. But why can't Christians look nice and smell good? I was raised on a farm in Tennessee, and some of those Christian women... It's like, get a shave... Along with the manicure, I. I, But I'm. I'm just saying. I don't think we ought to have to. You can be a Christian and be beautiful at the same time. Do the best you can with what you have. My wife told me, she said, I, I want to marry somebody on fire for God, and I don't care if they are ugly. I said, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, I think. So, what is this sin? It is the, not, it is choosing on the goodliness of their looks, not the godliness of their lives. Proverbs thirty-one thirty: Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Now, what are the effects of it? What are the effects? What? Why is this so vital that we teach our children and we reach our children with the concept? That it's vital to marry within the faith. And I want to give you, these are some things you can talk to your children about. Better to do it when they're five, ten, before they start thinking about it. Drill it in, pray it down, but don't wait. But here's some possible effects that they need to consider. Here's what you can lose. Intermarriage between lost and saved means that you may very well lose a model and example for your children. Your children will tend to follow what they see, and the father will be the biggest influence. They will tend to follow the model and example for what they see. So is this before you marry teach your children will this person lead your children into heaven and into Christ or will they lead them away from him Number 2 You you risk the loss of Having the joy of a partner, a co-laborer in the work of God's kingdom. And those of you who, do, who work in the church and understand what it means, I mean, there's nothing quite like husband and wife working together, praying together, setting goals together with a compatible vision And when you do that, and your children see you pray, and they know you're going to church on Sunday, that there's no debate, there's no discussion on it, then you comprise a formidable threat to Satan as a partner in the work of the kingdom. And there's no joy like that knowing that you both serve a purpose higher than yourselves. Number three, you risk the loss of the support and help that you will need in your Christian life. If you as a Christian marry a non-believer, you need to know that you, Christian life is a struggle, and Christian life is sometimes a failure a failing and a floundering. And sometimes the Christian life needs that other person to come alongside in an unconditional covenant, put their arms around you and say, hey, I'm standing with you. I'm here. And I'm praying for you. And I'm praying with you. You need that help in the Christian life. Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens, wooed and won a Christian lady named Olivia Langdon. This was in 1870. Uh, Mark Twain was an unbeliever. He told her, he said, I do not believe the Bible is the word of God. I do not believe God speaks to us today. I do not believe in salvation. I do not believe in intervention and redemption. As to whether there is a God, maybe I have no clue. But when they first married... Uh, she, he would listen to her pray and let her read the Bible, but it wasn't long until he said, you've got to stop. I, I cannot stand to hear this fiction. I, I don't believe it. And over the years, his unbelief wore down her faith, which she gradually abandoned. They had four children, one died young, and they had a daughter, Susie, whom they both adored. She's 24 years old. She was precocious. Everything she did just was tremendous, successful, just beautiful, lit up a room when she walked in, and she got spinal meningitis, and she died when she was 24 years old. And it devastated them. Mark Twain saw the effect, the impact it had on his wife. One day as she, I'm sure, was weeping, he said to her, if it helps you to lean on your faith, go ahead and do it. And she said back to him, I have no faith any longer to lean on and the mother died two years later. When you try to live life, the Christian life, you need the help and support of another Christian spouse. I want that for you. And I am fighting this day for you to have it, for your children to have it, for your grandchildren to have it. And I will use an illustration. And I'll use a verse of Scripture because I want to push back the darkness that says it doesn't matter who you marry. Number four, you risk the loss of the greatest happiness which can only be found in God's presence when you substitute mortal man as your greatest joy or woman woman. You're hurting your chances to be truly, deeply, permanently joyous. Psalm 1611 says, At your right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's in God. But when we turn and substitute mortality for that and put a person in place of God, we will always have an inferior joy. 1 Kings 11 talks about King Solomon, how he loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. But not one time do you find Israelite listed in that long list of women that he loved. And it says, and of the nations which the Lord said, don't, you're not to marry them. He turned to them, and, he, and Solomon clung, clung to them in love. He was in love yeah, 700 times. <laughs> he meets a Moabite woman. Whoa, I am in love. And he marries her. Until he meets an Edomite woman, whoa again, I am in love. And then he meets a Zidonian, I am in love. And then a Hittite, now I'm really in love. He does that 700 times, and that's not enough because it says he added 300 concubines. Just that's between loves. That's what I call, you can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) Have you seen this guy? What's his name that sings that song? Yeah, Mick Jagger. Have you seen him? Whoa! <laughs> Zombie time! <laughs> now, I mean, that song fits his profile. He, they need to do a close-up of Mick Jagger every time he sings that song. I can't get no satisfaction. Dude, we, we get it. <laughs> How many is having a good time? Amen. (laughs) Amen. All right. Let me give you some practical counsel here. Practical counsel. Here's some steps that I just want to leave with you today. Number one if you have a Christian spouse, then don't leave the day without praising God with all your heart for that Christian spouse say praise God thank you Lord for saving me from the many things I could have fallen into we have a lot of problems folks right but praise God that's not one of them so praise God if you have a Christian spouse and tell them today how happy marrying a Good Christian woman or man has made you. Number two, if you did not marry a Christian, serve God anyway. Serve God anyway. And my point here is God's bigger than your failures, His mercy is greater than your sins. His his the extension of his arm to reach and save goes beyond the pit into which you jumped. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. I love this. This is the message. It's a paraphrase, but I love the way it puts it. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. It says uh, <clears throat> if the unbelieving spouse leaves you, let him go. You don't have to hold on, cling in desperation. God has called you to peace. And you never know. The way you handle this might bring your husband back to you and to God. Or a husband, you never know. This might bring, the way you handle it might bring your wife and you back to God. But to God and to you. And don't, and listen to this, this is the message. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 17. And don't always be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. So live and obey and love right where you are. For it is God, not your marital status, that defines you. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? I love that paraphrase in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. By the way, I I was trying to think, who in the Bible married an unbeliever, but yet was still used of God and blessed by God? Esther. Esther. Remember that story? Esther chapter 4, verse 14, she's married to like the Persian Ahasuerus, the Persian king, and he was a pagan. But but being married to him, her uncle Mordecai appealed to her to go before him, save the nation of Israel, and it says in Esther 414 that it could be that you have actually been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. God is not surprised by our failures. There's mercy with the Lord. Serve Him anyway. Serve God anyway. Number three. In light of this, be intentional with your children. Remember that the Corruption of society here is what triggered God's decree in verse 3, my spirit will not always strive with man. There's going to be 120 years. See, it's 120 years from the time God says that to Noah when God sent the flood. God could foresee the intermarriage would trigger the flood in 120 years. So we must be intentional with our children and be urgent with them. Start them early with Bible verses and instructions for we are their biggest influence. Teach them the stories of Samson and Delilah. He married a loser. Teach them that story. What happened to Samson? She betrayed him. Lost people act like lost people. You marry a lost person, you're probably going to tr- get treated like a lost person treats, law- treats people. Tell them about Samson and Delilah. Tell them about Solomon and what happened. He lost his kingdom. God raised up an adversary in the same chapter, 1 Kings 11. Be intentional with your children for you are their greatest influence. And P.S., I want to put in a plug here. I am... Proposing privately to individuals and, and groups, uh, and I'm, I've begun already, that we build an education building on the other side of that building, primarily for the purpose of teaching our children the stories of the Bible, which contain the truths of God that He wants communicated to our, the next generation. I am proposing we build that. And I've already got over $40,000 in cash and pledges. So get on this bandwagon, because it's going to the right station. And help us build that building over there. We're going to pay cash. We're not going to borrow. Why? Because it is essential that these children that God's made us stewards of have that teaching and have have those Bible classes all right, one other thing. The fourth thing here is view your children as a calling from God. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis 4, 26. To, uh, uh, well, I'll back up to verse 25. Genesis four twenty-five. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, verse 26, was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Does yours have that phrase, at that time, in it? Genesis 4, 26. At that time, at the birth of the baby there came a wave of conviction and urgency about seeking the Lord. <laughs> at that time, when that baby was born. Now look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 21. When Enoch, in the li- this, he's in the line of Seth. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Verse 22. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Does your, does your version have after he fathered Methuselah in Genesis 5, 26? Is that the way it reads? Right? After he fathered Methuselah. Again, the birth of the baby overwhelmed him and he said, i got to walk with God. Man, i gotta, I got I to leap into maturity and grow up because I have a baby. And then, why did Noah build the ark? I and I up until this past week, I thought it was to save humanity. You know what? Hebrews eleven seven, and give me that verse. Tells us why. And I had to look at this two or three times. And I thought, what's going on here? By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events unseen, in fear he constructed an ark for the saving. The Amplified says, for the purpose of saving his own family. His children were a powerful driving force to work 120 years and build that ark. That ark was... He was motivated by every time he put a nail in the wood of that ark. He was thinking to them boys... And them daughters-in-law and them coming grandbabies and to save his family. And look, guys, Noah didn't do a whole lot. But he saved his family. Let us be intentional about saving our families and not take this just like, oh, we have children now. Oh, that's nice. Do we have enough bedrooms? No, the, the, this is a calling from God. When Seth had Enosh, then they started calling on God. When Enoch had Methuselah, then he walked with God. When Noah heard judgment is coming, then he built an ark for his family. I am appealing to you as parents, put this as the top of your list and pray to God for revival in your family. Because if you do not intentionally pursue your children and their salvation, they will drift. And folks, on that day, nothing's going to matter except that. We believe the Bible. We believe these stories. And we hold these truths. Therefore, we act. We build, we pray, we work, we call on God's blessing. Let's teach our children the importance of marrying within the faith. Let's teach them the importance of avoiding the world's definition of beauty and the silliness of Hollywood. Let us see the value and potential of every little baby And let us seek God's mercy for all our failures. For we who are married know what it means to fail. Let's set ourselves to seek the Lord on behalf of our children like Noah. And let's keep our kids in the faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take these words and this story and bless them by the power of your Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.